Welcome to the Maharat Cast. My name is Rabba Ramey Smith. I'm your host coming to you from London. My guest this episode is Rabbanit Dasi Fruchter. Rabbanit Dasi is the founder and spiritual leader of the South Philadelphia Stiebel, a new and inclusive modern Orthodox community in South Philadelphia. Rabbanit Dasi also holds the position of halachic advisor for Nida and Women's Health at Beth Shalom Congregation in Potomac, Maryland. She previously served as the assistant spiritual leader at Beth Shalom Congregation in Talmud Torah, which is the largest modern Orthodox congregation in the Washington metropolitan area. Rabbanit Dasi is a Wexner Graduate Fellow and Davidson Scholar and was the program director at Immerse NYC, New York's only community mikvah project. She is trained in community organizing through the Jewish Organizing Institute and Network, or JOIN, Seminary Leadership Program, and currently serves as the coordinator for Yeshivat Maharat's Mind the Gap program. Rabbanit Dasi is a close friend and lifelong chavruta of mine, and I could not be more excited to bring her on this episode to talk to you about ritual. Anyone who knows Rabbanit Dasi knows that she is an expert at building and facilitating ritual. On this episode, we'll be discussing with her what is ritual, what are the parameters within which we build new ritual, and how to combine the old with the new. Tell me a little bit about you and your journey to Yeshivat Maharat. So my name is Dasi Fruchter. I ended up at Maharat after a journey of knowing that I wanted to be involved in communal leadership and growing and building a community, but not sure exactly how I was going to be a part of that process. I had my own road towards what that might look like. And then one day, um, Rabbi Sarah Harwitz and Yeshivat Maharat um, materialized, and it couldn't have been at the more perfect moment. And it became the path I took towards communal and spiritual leadership and teaching Torah. Rabbanit Dasi was raised in a home rich with spirituality, music, and a lively commitment to the Jewish community. Her parents are two of the most spiritually, ritually, and communally active people I've ever met. I wanted to know what it was like growing up in such a vibrant, active Jewish home, and how was it transformative in your own ritual building? Yeah, one of the one of the most special things about growing up in an Orthodox home was the way that ritual formed a container around the day. Um, like from the moment from the from the moment I woke up until the moment I went to sleep, there was a, a way to hold that moment, to mark that moment, whether it was eating or going to the bathroom. Um, but even beyond that, I think my family had their spin on rituals. Right, everyone does ritual, Jewish ritual, in a slightly different way. But what I really appreciated about growing up in the home that I did is that Jewish rituals did not feel like they came out of the box, right? Like it wasn't like you opened, you unzipped the plastic wrap and like, oh, a ritual. Great. We'll do it. No, it was like, let's do it our way. Let's infuse it with meaning. Let's empower each other and the, and the kids. Um, so for me, like the Seder isn't just a Seder. Candle lighting for Shabbos isn't just candle lighting for Shabbos. Even the blessings on Friday night given to the children had their own quirks. Like when, when we, one of us would be away, my father would, still does this, uh, place his hands in the air at approximately the height of each one of us. Um, wasn't just like he muttered the blessing. No, he formed the shape of our heads with his hands. Um, so when I think about uh, the power of ritual in my home, it was the specificity and the uniqueness of the ritual that we were doing that happened to be like old and rooted, but it was special for us. 
Does that make sense? Some, yeah. Can you tell me a little, some more of the rituals? Sure. I'm trying to think like one in particular when we would, you mentioned music. My family was really musical. Um, at the end of Eshet Chayil, like we would be singing Eshet Chayil on Friday night. And there was like a moment where we would have coordinated per- percussive clapping. It was like, right. But it was like, we knew what to do. We would laugh. We would like create like little shifts and changes. Um, and it was just something also when uh, people would visit us and come to us for Shabbat dinner, like they would know to expect. And it gave it a special feeling of warmth. And for me in building a community today, um, the way I've integrated it is I don't just uh, do things uh, like have a class, teach a class or run shul. I try to make it feel like everybody who's there is part of the inside experience. When you are doing this ritual here, like in this home or at this shul, you know that you're a part of this place and that you belong here. So I'm just like blown away. And this is something that I think I learned growing up by the power of ritual when you don't take it out of the box and just do it flat um, without any affect, the power of ritual to actually feel inclusive in that way. Let's take a step back. What is ritual? Ritual is a funny word that um, it feels like it's, it's like, you know, the word spirituality, where it's like, what does that even mean? Um, but to me, ritual is a moment to mark time, a, a moment to mark something. And it is an experience of marking a particular transition in the day, in the moment, in life, and not letting it pass without doing something, some action. Um, so marking something, I mean, you could drink coffee in the morning, right? That's a ritual. Um, and that's a way to mark the beginning of your day. But for me, like when I think of, um, starting Shabbat dinner, for me, the ritual of that clapping that I mentioned before, then it wasn't really Shabbos until that started. Right. So an action that marks the passage of time, a way to really hold the experience, hold that, uh, hold that moment, of acknowledging that it's not a minute ago, it's now, right? It's a way to do that. Anyone who knows Rabbanit Dasi knows that she is someone who is an expert at facilitating and creating ritual. I wanted to know at what point she went from someone who kind of just experienced ritual to someone who facilitated it and built it. When did that happen? And how did that happen? Yeah. I started hosting Shabbat as uh, a really new out of high school person, right? I would, I would be in college and I would host these Shabbat meals and soon, pretty soon into it, I realized that I really enjoyed constructing an experience for those who were coming to join me for Shabbat, just like my parents had done for me and for those who, who came to our home. Um, and what's great about the fact that like we were included in that ritual creation growing up is I kind of knew what to do, right? Um, one of my favorite books right now is Priya Parker's uh, The Art of Gathering. I don't know if you've seen that book, but basically the whole book feels like it's about a Shabbat dinner, right? It's about how, how we can meaningfully gather. And um, I think looking back on that time when I first started to host Shabbat meals, it became this uh, muscle that I began to flex, you know, like, oh, that worked. Why does that person seem alienated by what I'm doing? 
am I like being too silly? Like, do I need to be this silly? <laughs> or um, maybe I didn't prepare the right kinds of food or, and I, I started to notice that I was good at it, right? Um, and people wouldn't leave and they enjoyed the experience. And so moving from that into leadership positions in the Jewish world, I started to feel like my favorite spaces to be professionally were the kinds of spaces where I was helping people mark moments um, from one to the next, helping people settle into a room, helping people uh, enter a text for the first time and then exit it, um, helping people immerse in the mikvah or um, light Shabbat candles or whatever it was, uh, just like helping people settle into that moment of marking a transition. And I'll share with you that before I did really get good at it, I had to learn how to do surgery on ritual. Like I had to figure out um, what are the parts of it? Like, how, how does this, ha it doesn't just happen, right? How do you really do it? And so just in talking to you today, I'm, I'm really imagining like, what, what if the rituals were on an operating table, right? And I'm just like pulling them apart with, with all the different tools. And that to me is how I think about it even to this day when I help build weddings or when I help build uh, life cycle events of any kind, like funerals, what are the different pieces to make sure that this quote surgery, right, is a success? Um, how, are, how is the person gonna feel whole um, and held by this? I asked her if she could pick these components apart and if I could observe the surgery right here as she does it. Yeah. So, you know, what is the goal of it? Right. That, that would be one thing. Like, what is the goal of ritual? Um, sometimes I like to, to nerd out about like the, the, like mitzvot, right. I like to nerd out about what is the role of a mitzvah, um, like based on the different kinds of mitzvah it is, right. Whether they're yearly or daily or, so when I think about uh, ritual, I have to ask that very question. What's the point is it to mark a moment that what that would go otherwise unmarked and therefore like loom somewhere until it comes out in an unhealthy way? Is it to feel the presence of God? Is it to create empowerment? So that would be number one is figuring out why are we doing this? And what I mentioned before about my Shabbat table is that I think we really have to ask that question even when the ritual is already there for us, right? We have to ask the question, like, why am I going to shul? You know, <laughs> like, and as a person, I, I now um, run a shul, um, helped create a shul, uh, and I'm now facilitating spiritual experiences all the time. You know, I, I, I have an opportunity to think, like, why are we gathering? Like, what is the point of this? So that we can really figure out um, how to move forward. Then beyond that, a structure I really love to use is... Um, what am I leaving behind? How am I present? And how am I moving forward after this? And on a really basic level, that what all, all that is, it's like an isolation of the moment. We're trying to figure out what is this ritual coming to mark? What is the present moment? Is there anything I wanna leave? And is there anything I wanna look forward to um, as a result of this ritual? And that's like a very basic surgery, right? Of figuring out what this ritual is. Um, I don't think I'm an expert, right? Like, I think I'm just love the experience of helping to make sure that the sacred spaces we create are deeply nourishing. And there are lots of scholars out there who have done really, really cool work on this. But for me, um, it's so unique to every person. Um, and they're so, and like, 
this is a conversation about Maharat, right? Like uh, this is a, so I think the essential part of my Maharat training for ritual engagement is not only how we do the rituals, like the holidays and Shabbos and all these kinds of things, but it's pastoral intuition, right? Like who is this person and what do they need? Right. Um, so that's actually a really important part of doing the surgery too. It's not a sterile experience. We're going to get to mikvah in a little bit, which I see as the bread and butter of Rabbanit Dasi's ritual building expertise. But for now, I wanted to ask her if she could just talk about some different rituals she's built in different areas. Funerals, weddings, bris, life cycle events, transformative moments, whatever it is. I wanted to know a little bit more about that. Hmm. Yeah, um, Dr. Vanessa Oaks has a has a great book um, about ritual called Inventing Jewish Ritual. And she talks about the tension between um, rituals that are uh, like too new and rituals that are too stale, right? Um, so I think another thing to consider is there's a spectrum of like how innovative the rituals should be in a particular moment. And I've told this story before, um, maybe even to you, <laughs> maybe we've discussed this, but we're on a podcast anyway. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, but I, I, I uh, you know, we're going to talk about the mikvah, but I had an experience with a woman who was going through a number of pregnancy losses and it was very difficult for her to not feel seen by existing liturgy um, in Jewish tradition and all we have really for that is is the mikvah right after the bleeding so um we went to the mikvah a number of times and i remember on on the fourth time um right it was the third or fourth time and i said to her we were sitting next to each other like we had the times before kind of in this like dark like basement room whatever it is and i said where do you want to start like what are you leaving behind what are you looking for i started the whole ritual conversation and she taught me a great lesson that day she said i'm done creating rituals i don't want to create a ritual anymore i just want to open the sea door and feel seen right um and without that she didn't have the theological grounding to feel like that ritual meant something um so what i learned from that is regardless of the spins that um i help people put on ritual to make it feel individualized i have to be really careful about that activity or that moment seeming superficial or confusing or inaccessible and i don't want to make sure i want to make sure that actually that the power of ritual doesn't get chucked off the power of feeling connected to something very old so all of that said when my approach to life cycle ritual is that I will explain what the core is, like what the meat of, of the ritual is. And then based on the conversations I've been having, I try to like ask if certain things seem interesting. You know, some people choose to um, include a ritual object uh, with the baby at the moment of naming? Is there something that's meaningful to you and your family to like bring that in at that time? And I'll ask it like a question, not that has to have a yes, but it's just an idea. Like I don't open it up so wide um, that someone is is overwhelmed by the, by the different possibilities of what to do. Um, and this is something I learned from from this awesome human facilitator named Pippi Kessler, who, who taught with me at um, Immerse NYC. Um, but just to 
just like when you're helping somebody, right? Um, to not give them an open offer for help. Like, let me know if you need anything. Right? No, it's like, here are some options. Like, here's the ritual, whimsical toolbox. So many different things we can do. And let's talk about the goals that we mentioned before. Is there anything that would help you get there? Anything that will help you feel seen? Like I said before, theologically ground you, um, communicate compassion, all of these different things. Um, and then we'll move from there. I had an experience right after Rosh Hashanah. I had to go to the mikvah following a miscarriage. When I got to the mikvah, it was the first time that I felt like I had the courage to tell the mikvah guide what I needed for my immersion. I told her I did not want her to put a towel over my head as I said the bracha, and when I immersed, I wanted her to use the word tehora instead of kosher. Her response, while very simple, blew me away. She simply said, Okay, is there anything else that you'd like from this immersion? In years of going to the mikveh in the United Kingdom, no one had asked me that question, and I was taken aback by how much I needed to hear it. And on my drive home from the mikveh, I realized that the need a ritual that was in place for a regular immersion just did not suit my needs for this kind of immersion. I didn't want a bracha just saying al-hatvila on my immersion. I wanted a bracha that said, I actually don't want to be here because I want to be pregnant, but I'm here because I have to be. And I wanted to ask Rabbanit Tasi, do we create a new ritual here in an example like this, or should we be looking for that spiritual nourishment elsewhere? I think that if someone were to sit with you, like in that moment, I don't know for sure, but maybe you would be angry with them, right? Um, and that, that was the ritual, right? <laughs> it's so, it's really, really interesting um, what you just said around that question when, when, someone asks you, is there anything else you'd like me to know? Um, you need consent to do ritual. Um, and I hope this, this word is not sounding like boring to your listeners, like ritual. It's not like a Jewish word, but because um, it could be like mitzvahs or like, I, I don't know what it is, right? It's like, there's so many, basically everything we do is ritual. So it's, it's hard to, to figure out what I mean by that. But if there is a facilitator of ritual in the room and a recipient, it will feel pretty bad if there is not consent. Um, even just like light consent, being like, anyone mind if we do Havdalah? Like, I know this isn't really like the right time for it, but you, you've now had permission to be annoyed that it's not the right time for it. COVID's been a really interesting time for that. Um, like, I probably wouldn't pull in something Jewish at that time unless it felt appropriate and like not a stretch. Like I would, I would probably help, help create an environment of Selam Elohim and helping people feel seen and like heard and together without necessarily teaching anything about it. So for example, I would have them offer affirmations to each other at the end of the day. And that doesn't, that's not easily recognizable as a ritual, but it is, right? Um, what it does is it, again, instead of just ending the Zoom, what we're saying is, okay, we don't have what we had before around distinguishing times from each other. So we need to be creative around how to do that. How can we do that? Well, let's fill, the, fill this weird virtual room with gratitude. And then that's going to be the way that we say this moment is over. We're taking what's been, we're naming what's now, and we're moving to the next thing. Yeah, that's the other thing, like risk-taking with ritual. It's, it's, um, it's possible. You can definitely take a risk, but it's always good to ask. Um, I forgot who it was. 
was Rabbi Fox. I was just on on a um on a on a Zoom with him, and he said, "Does anybody mind if we if we play ninety seconds of a song before we head out?" Right? Um, and he, he, you know, everyone's just like nodding, and he did it. But it was lovely, and I think it would have been jarring if he hadn't asked. So. It's, I think it's like a cool feature, perhaps, of 21st century Jewish space um, to not necessarily uh, give everyone too much choice because it's nice to feel held by, by something, by someone, but to be like, hey, let's do this now. We're on page this or we're doing this now um, and let people like be a part of it, be, be bought into it. This episode is sponsored by At The Well. Are you seeking a meaningful pathway to wellness? Are you looking for a space where you belong? At The Well is a nonprofit organization that connects women around the world with transformative rituals rooted in Jewish rhythms and wisdom. By creating a worldwide network anchored in innovative Rosh Chodesh gatherings, all women can find sacred spaces to feel connected to themselves, Jewish tradition, and community. At The Well offers Jewish ritual for the new, now, inspiring women to empower themselves, live whole lives, and lift each other up. Join them at atthewellproject.com. Find them on Instagram or Facebook at atthewellproject. Rabbanit Dasi is a real mikvah guru. She trains me as a mikvah guide, and I draw on her teachings as both a mikvah guide and a mikvah user all the time. Rabbanit Dasi, how did you get into mikvah work? I think it always intrigued me uh, that there was this dark, mysterious place that Jewish women went that, like, you couldn't know about until you were married. And then it was this thing that was where, like, the person in your house escaped to go once a month or whatever it was. It was always just in my consciousness as something interesting. But I think as I learned more about it, I learned that there was something very simple about it, um, the ritual itself, right? When, when Shul was two hours, mikvah was embodied and, and one moment, right? Like it just felt so different from so much uh, that we do in our Jewish lives. Like I, I felt that, uh, you know, the embodied things that, that exist in our tradition are very, they're annual, right? like shaking the lulav and estrog, annual, right? <laughs> the Arbaminim, or sitting in a sukkah or dancing on some Torah. But there was this thing that exists and it's often and it's warm and it involves your body and it's there, right? Um, and ancient and beautiful. I think I was always intrigued by that. And eventually I, I learned more about how it can really become a canvas for ritual that does not yet exist. And I learned more historically, halachically, about how spiritually, about how mikvah has been used for just that thing, right? Um, to get inspiration before Shabbat, to feel whole, to prepare for Yom Kippur, uh, all of these different things that are not necessarily related, even though some argue with, with Yom Kippur that there is like a, a halachic element. Um, I, I learned that there was a sense of here is a space where you can mark things that aren't markable in any other Jewish way. And that's, that's how I got into it. And that's how I, I began to love it. 
Once you kind of entered that space, how how did you start at the drawing board? Because it really, you're right, it, it is like a blank canvas of just infinite possibilities for building ritual around it because of its simplicity. Um, and it also carries this insane complexity because there's no single experience. It's what your experience is as that person in that moment, that month. So, you know, how did you start to build a ritual around it when the canvas was so blank? So I just, I also feel like I know a lot of women who have been deeply traumatized by their mikvah experience. And there was something really jarring to me about a body of water that was supposed to hold you, kind of creating that violent experience. It was very jarring to me. And so when I think about creating a ritual around the mikvah, I think about what it's supposed to feel like, right? Which is a hug, right? Or like a holding, a, like a divine holding of some kind. Um, and, you know, it's funny that I say supposed to feel like everyone feels something different. But ultimately, for me, I would say like, I can say with confidence that you should come out of the mikvah like a little more seen than you were a minute ago, <laughs> whatever that means to you. Um, so when I think about ritual, I think about like, well, okay, well, what, what would help a person feel that? Like for me personally, I'm, I want nobody in the room if that's the case, because it's very hard for me to let go and be held. So like what, for me, the circumstances around feeling held in that space um, and in that moment maybe means I don't have a facilitator of that ritual um, and it's just me. But in any event, I, I just need to ask questions. I need to ask questions to figure out, you know, where somebody is on that question, what their orientation is toward it. Um, and maybe even like you said before, the, the ability to um, make your own choices as it comes to your, your mikvah dunking and observance. I really like the idea of the mikvah feeling like some sort of embrace. For a really long time, we did not talk about the different issues that mikvah might bring up, whether it's um, you know, a mikvah guide seeing a very rapidly changing body or signs of physical abuse or the mikvah bringing up pain about not being pregnant. The idea of the mikvah holding you in whatever it is, I think for so many women, the water of the mikvah is like tears that's holding them. And we didn't talk about it for so long that, you know, so many women were experienced being kind of engulfed in their own tears in the mikvah. Mm. And now in these more alternative mikvah spaces, and, and really a lot of it is largely thanks to your work, the question is asked, what is this mikvah for you? What's holding you? And what do you want to be holding you? So I'm curious in your experience if you found that once women are asked the question, they're very open with what they need. I think if I'm able to give them a few different directions, it's more helpful. Like I mentioned before, if I could say, you know, there are different pieces of ritual. There's like how we place our bodies, what we say, what's the tone, right? Who's there? Do you want this to feel traditional or avant-garde, right? There are so many different questions to ask but also it can be really overwhelming. So just to kind of be like, hey, where are you at? Where is your heart and mind right now? And that can more specifically orient a person towards what they might need in that moment. Um, if I can be helpful for that, right? Like 
we talked a little bit about anger before. If it's an angry immersion, right? That's a very different kind of immersion than a peaceful one or a, or a like humorous or joyous one. Very different tones. And I also really love and whenever possible for a person to self-facilitate, to like be the facilitator of, you know, whatever they need, whatever they need to do. Often like permission giving in ritual is really interesting. And I wonder if you experience this as someone who's a musmechad of Maharat, but sometimes people turn to us for permission to, to like break away from a particular orientation of the ritual. Like, oh, can I laugh now? Yeah. yeah. Can you give me a few examples of rituals that you have done at the mikvah? One thing I'm really liking, because we were just talking about permission giving, I think the best rituals I've facilitated were really ones that someone has already decided to do in their head, but didn't think were okay. Um, Like I'm thinking of one woman whose partner, whose husband made her a playlist whenever she went to the mikvah. So she listened, she blasted the playlist while she prepped. Um, And I just like, loved that. She had that idea, but she needed permission. She was like wondering about that. Um, one other, one other ritual uh, came from a woman who wanted to use every Nida immersion as an experience of her own self-growth in addition to something around her relationship. So each cycle, she chose a tefila to work on and study, like in depth. And then when she got to the mikvah, she recited that prayer like with all of she like like almost you know how water sometimes like if you dip something in hot cold water it like seals it in so that was that's something I built with her is like you know um you work on it you let it like you know just be be goopy in there and then every month you can go seal it in you know and so that's that's one thing as well um I'm trying to think what about for like more painful and difficult or transitional immersions yeah, I've, I feel like I've done a lot of grief immersions and get immersions. Um, I think Rabbi Sperber, I don't know for sure, but I think he writes about get immersions in his Minhage Israel book. book. Um, really beautiful stuff, like with the ketubas, getting rid of them in a way that, that or like putting them away um, in a way that, that was meaningful. Um, and often we would do it like at, the day of the baitin, you know, so it was like, it felt connected and it didn't have to be all that other experience. Yeah, I don't know. I think you mentioned the tears of the mikvah. I really feel that what always surprises me in the most moving of ways is that the bride is weeping from grief and the mourner is laughing of joy. You had, you had asked me about like the harder life moments it's so interesting. I've just found that sometimes with the grief immersions, those are the lightest, right? Like, you know, it, it's not, it's not prescribed like which, which one will yield which emotion. I think for a bride, uh, what I've realized is that there's so many expectations for them to be joyful, that it's just like the only place to let go and grieve. You're actually grieving a deep loss when you're transitioning in that way, in addition to joy. But for, for a mourner, they've had a lot of spaces that they've been expected to grieve. Um, and now sometimes they want a space to be like, hey mom, let's hang out and laugh, you know? So I don't know, it's interesting to reflect on. 
Can I say something about like COVID ritual quickly before I forget? Please, please, please. Um, one thing that um, I'm realizing is Mikvah is like a really natural place to create sanctity, right? And mark time. Um, I mentioned this a little bit briefly with like Zoom meetings and rituals and how to move from one thing to the next. But I also realized we're coming up on a year now. Um, I don't know when you're going to record like uh, whatever this, but um, I think it's been a long time of not having rituals, right? So I, I'll share with you that while I was doing a lot of individual ritual facilitation and like, uh, what do you call it? Like family ritual facilitation before I got to this place where I was building a community. Now I feel like I'm building rituals for a community. Like if you imagine like a community lives and breathes on its own, now I feel like I'm building rituals for it, right? To mark moments. Um, in addition for the people in it, but it's interesting to think about needing a community to mark certain times together um, when you don't have the ability to come together. Um, it's just something I've been thinking a lot about, just finding those moments to be like, okay, let's jointly mark this time. Um, otherwise, it feels like something is missing. So I don't know, something I'm thinking a lot about, the difference between facilitating a ritual for a single person and crafting a communal experience. They're very different. Do you think there's room to build new ritual within the framework of halakha? Mm, sure, sure. I mean, well, a ritual doesn't necessarily have to be um, a new thing totally. I think a lot of what we're seeing now with COVID-19 is the formation of new rituals around old mitzvot, right? I think that's a distinction that we should make, that the mitzvahs remain, um, the halachas remain, but rituals get created around them. So, yeah. What do you think is, I mean, in, in some communities, in some spaces, what do you think the hesitation is for people to be creative in their ritual? I think like a, a departure from the authentic is a huge fear. Um, and it's really important to have our, our fingers on the pulse of, of that question. It, is this invented ritual too far to make it feel like, are we going to lose the ability of this ritual to actually like ground us in something old? Um, and I think that's, that's a big, big resistance piece. I also think, and this is something we can, we can schmooze about, but women in our roles, um, any ritual that we do for people or facilitate is new. Um, forget about what it is. That's another thing I, I thought a lot about after my first pulpit job is that um, I could do the same exact like facilitation of a mitzvah experience or, or, a, or any sort of holiday experience, life cycle experience that my male colleague had, but it would be totally different. It's a different voice coming out. It's a different body. It's a different experience. So um, what I've learned with ritual facilitation in the Orthodox community is that when I do it in the position that I have, the job that I have, I can't go too far um, because that it feels unrooted. So I actually find that while I'm really intentional about the, the spaces I create, the ritual itself, like the meat, is not going to be super different. In fact, sometimes I'll choose to make it even more traditional feeling because it's already 
new um, by virtue of the fact that I'm speaking it out or facilitating it. As we close this episode about ritual, I asked Rabanit Dasi to give us some ritual tools for dummies. Tell us a few things we can do to create and facilitate our own successful rituals. Great. I love that question. So number one is know your resources. Um, Know that there are resources on the internet. There's Ritual Well. There's like OpenCDoor.net. There's just so many places. There's Tlinas. There's so many different types of existing prayers um, that exist without you having to write them um, and that are cool and unique. So that's that's one thing is like know the resources that are out there around um, ritual creation or co-creation or whatever it is. Second tip is be aware of the spectrum of innovation and rootedness and old ancient feelings. So making sure that you are aware of the place on the spectrum that your facilitation of ritual falls and make sure it fits with either whether it's for you or for your family or for someone else, making sure it's not being strained or forced, but it actually feels right and helps a person feel seen in the moment they're marking. And then third, um, know that there are surgeries to be done on ritual, right? So you can think about the different parts, the before, the during, and after, like that, that structure that we mentioned before, and also know that there are different elements, including who is there, what are we wearing, what are we smelling, not to forget that we can totally engage all of the senses in ritual. Um, those are three things to think about, but on top of all of it, like if, if you remember nothing about ritual, we can go back to that conversation we were having around a consent a collaboration and inclusion, right? Just making sure that what you're doing is cool with the person you're doing it with, even if the person is yourself, right? Um, like making sure the, the, that the ritual meets you where you are, that it can be meaningful for you. I mean, we're going to think about that when we come up on the next holiday, whatever the next holiday is, try it out. Try to think about it like this. You know, am I doing the essential part of this holiday in a way that is meaningful to me? Um, you know, am I lifting the Arba me name in a way that makes me feel like I'm really marking the moment? Do I need a breath before the bracha? You know, like how am I going to maybe just tweak the, the, the things I'm doing just a little bit to make the ritual a little more meaningful? And maybe after you do that, you'll feel a little more empowered to bring that to another person in your life. Yeah, I think um, because so many of us are doing rituals at home in a private space versus a communal space for the first time, I, I know personally it's given me the feeling like a lot of liberty to create ritual. My Seder last year was completely different than it normally would be. And I found afterward that, you know, not having that existing structure was actually very freeing and it allowed me to create some ritual that I wanted to create that I couldn't. Um, but I, I found that it was really nice. So hopefully, as life kind of creeps, slowly back towards where we were, take our existing rituals and while we're outside of this shul space, kind of make them our own. I love that. And and one final thought on my end about about that. Um, try not to get tripped up by the word ritual. Um, it could be that you just need to replace it with the word mitzvah, right? Like I, I think that sometimes the conversation around this question can feel detached from a very traditional observance of Yiddishkeit, right, of Judaism. But it really does apply to every corner of how we observe Judaism. It's just a matter of making sure the language works for you. 
I want to close this episode with a question of reflection. Rabbanit Dasi, if you can go back and give your first year yeshiva self a pep talk or a piece of advice, what would it be? Your activism will make a difference, right? Your work will make a difference. It's not for nothing, right? And you don't have to be a certain way, like in order for it not to be for nothing. And there's so many different ways to do it. Um, but just that, that idea. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Maharat Cast. I really hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to check out all the other awesome episodes of the Maharat Cast. Rate us, like us, subscribe. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Feel free to reach out at maharatcast at yeshivatmaharat.org.